You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lithub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Maza Mengist. Hello, can I please speak with Maza Mengisti? This is her. Is this Paul? It is Paul. Maza, I'm so happy to have you on the line. Thank you. Thank you for taking this phone call. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Paul. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. It's been so long since I've seen you. And my goodness, your ascension and the Shadow King and bravo, and it's becoming a film, or it's been optioned to become a film. My goodness, you, you you must be so excited. I'm I'm so excited. You know, it it feels like all of it is it's happening so fast. Um, but you know, people have been reminding me that I've been working on this book for almost ten years. So anything will feel fast. But you know, um, the last person I had on a phone call from Paul was Sarah Broom. And the same thing, it took her a decade and she told her story as indeed you have told hers and things have just accelerated in her life uh, to the point that I think Sarah would now, now like to have a moment to sit back and read again. Do you feel that? So what 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 are those books that are waiting for you? Which ones are you most excited by? You knew I would ask you. I know, I know. Oh my God! What you know? I have a book um, that has just landed on my desk by a Turkish writer that I admire very much, and his name is Burhan Sonmez. Um, and the book is called Labyrinth. I don't. I, I don't know him. I don't know him. Again, his name, I didn't quite capture it. Burhan Sonmen. I will, I will, I will have to, I will have to look him up and get those two books. What else? Yes. What else is on that, on that, on that? What else is, is beckoning you? Whether it's new, whether it's new or old or something in between. Yes, you know, um, one of the older pieces, older books that I really want to read, um, Another work that was published recently by one of my favorite writers, Dasha Drindic, a Croatian writer. Yes. She wrote a book, Trieste, that was absolutely instrumental to the way I conceived of this book that just got published. How so? But, How so? Um, 
documentation and fiction. Um, she she navigated this space in between historical data and and fiction, and she had photographs in the book. And I saw her exploding all of the rules and boundaries of what could be done in writing about World War II, writing about conflict, tragedy, naming the dead. She did so many things in that book. I didn't know you could do them all at once. Have you have you ever been to Trieste? In fact, after I read her book, um, I had a chance to meet her. She she has since passed away, um, and my conversations with her were again pivotal. Um, but after that, I did go to Trieste, and I went to the places that she wrote about because I was so invested in the way that she created this town and this history. And I went there and looked at some of the sites and, of course, explored the city. And it was it was incredible and moving and revelatory. Um, I, so um, I, I went to Trieste uh, not because of her, but because of Jan Morris. Have you read Have you read Jan Morris's extraordinary book Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere? I have, I have, I have, and 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 Alex, uh, Alex, and I spoke not about Trieste, but uh, we we spoke about Natalia Ginsburg, who he so loves. So there's yeah. definitely an an Italian connection. But you know, Jan Morris, who I also had on a phone call from Poland, <laughs> and who I admire so much. Her favorite book of her own is her book, Trieste and the Meaning of Nowhere. And I'll quote a little line from it, which I so love, and I'd love you to react to it, both in terms of, of Trieste and maybe in terms of your work. I think it might resonate. She says, I'm not the first to associate the city with nowhereness. It appears to have a particular influence upon those of us with a weakness for allegory. That is to say, those of us who suppose everything to mean more than it has an honest claim to mean. That's right. Right, you're right. You're right. I yeah. di I didn't think about it quite that way, mm -hmm. but absolutely. Right. It's a there's a rigidness to that city, but then I remember one of the most moving parts for me. I um I was just walking through the through Trieste, trying to get a sense of what it might have been like living there in World War II 
And one of the characters in my book is Italian. Yes. He's an Italian Jew. And in my head, his mother is from Trieste. And so I wanted to see what was it, what might it have been like for her to live there. And when I started moving into the area that is the, the Jewish area of Trieste, I don't know if it's called a ghetto, but it was a Jewish area. You could feel the streets getting narrower. You're right. Yeah, and you can feel the buildings, they're getting taller, but they're starting to lean. And at some point I said, my God, I've moved out of sunshine and I'm walking in shadow now. But there are groups of people who weren't afforded light. Um, and they lived in these cramped spaces. And uh, it, it's something that resonated with me and, and made me think of Trieste as an allegory for so much that I wanted to explore about war, but also just to explore so much about war and using also the 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 idea of allegory how does that how does that work itself do you think in the shadow king Right. Um, there's, it's a place on a map, but it is something that is, that is unmappable. There is a space that we all exist in that, that does not, um, that doesn't have borders. And I think, um, writing The Shadow King, I know that this is set in Ethiopia in a very particular location amongst a particular group of people, but this is, but. this is a mirror of something else that is happening in this, uh, it, it crosses time, it crosses boundaries, it crosses languages. I'm really uh, trying to explore this question I've had from the first book to this book, and I think also it, it will move with me through everything I write about what is the essence of, of who we are, what is it that makes us do things to other human beings that we might find so reprehensible we can't look ourselves in the mirror but we still continue to do some of those things. You know, um, it's, it's quite extraordinary to my mind to be speaking to you after having spoken to, to Sarah Broom, because for, for both of you, I think, um, a, a space that is both real and a space that we inhabit in our imagination is so present for her. Uh, you know, the references are, uh, perhaps less to Jan and more to someone like uh, Gaston Bachelard. Um, and, and the whole notion of map making is so important to her. And I recall a moment, Maza, so clearly um, when you came uh, to hear a conversation I had uh, a long time ago with Edwidge Danticat, who also, uh, thankfully, it's like an enchanted magical circle, uh, also took um, a phone call from Paul. And I remember quoting an epigram back to her um, from a book of hers um, from Michael Ondace, which I will read and then I'll have you react to it, where he says in The English Patient, he says, we die containing a richness of lovers and tribes, 
tastes we have swallowed, bodies we have plunged into and swim up as if rivers of wisdom, characters we have climbed into as if trees, fears we have hidden in as if caves. I wish for all of this to be marked on my body when I am dead. I believe in such a cartography to be marked by nature, not just to label ourselves on a map like the names of rich men and women on buildings. We are communal histories, communal books. How does this talk to you? I'm thinking now about one of my characters who has no concept of what a country is. Yes. Because like most villagers in Ethiopia, the furthest that she has gone uh, from her home is, is the distance that she can walk, which is about five kilometers. And when the news comes that Italy is about to invade Ethiopia and everyone needs to do their part to defend the country, she doesn't understand what a country is. And um, at some point when she is in the army and she's being abused by the, an officer, um, she starts to wonder, wait, aren't I my own country? Yes. Aren't I a country? And um, I hear echoes of Angaje's words in, in the way that Hirut is thinking about herself and conceiving of a human body as something that is um, very much a, a, something that contains all those things that Angaje mentioned. You know, aren't I a country on, on my own? And um, I love that line. I remember I was, I remember sitting there when you were talking to Edwidge and you read that quote and I wrote it down as quickly as I could so I could go home and look that up. And it has stuck with me. I, I copied it down in my notebook that night and still go back periodically to look at it. This, um, the idea that we are, we are made up of experiences and the people that come through our lives that we contain the markings that they've left behind. And it's very difficult for us to extricate ourselves both from the joys that they've brought and, and also the pain. And we are made up from the totality of all those experiences. I think that's absolutely beautiful. And because we contain them, uh, one might say, Mother, you, you had to write The Shadow King. You had to tell yes. you had to tell this story. And I, I and I yes. might and I might just say but why? <laughs> I like I like that laugh, by the way. <laughs> Thank it's, you. it's 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 I think uh, well, you know, you're asking a question I I know I asked myself when I was writing this in the in the very dark moments where I was not quite sure that I could finish this book, that I should finish this book. Um, I would come back with, but why? And um, this book entered into me. It's really interesting we're talking about this line uh, from Andaje. It entered into me like a dream. Um, and I remember distinctly it was... Um, in the year 2000 or maybe 1999, that long ago. And it, it made a place in the back of my head and never left. And I wasn't quite sure what it meant at that time to write a book. I had never written a book. I had never written a short story. I had no experience or um, any connection with writers or the writing world. But here this thing was. 
And by 2004, when I moved to New York to begin graduate school and enter into the writing program at NYU, I knew that this was a story. It felt like I was meant to write it. Um, it just, it, it, that thought was, a, was uh, the way I could describe it, is it, it felt like a, a part of me. It was a bone. It's a bone in my body. Um, I needed to write it, but I knew that I wasn't ready to write it as a first book. Um, so I wanted to write this first, the first book, Beneath the Lion's Gaze, all in preparation for what became The Shadow King. You know, I, I read a, a line by Brayton Breitenbach, which yeah. seems to me so uh, so close and close to the bone, as it were, of what you just said, where he says, in dancing with the enemy, one follows his steps, even if counting under one's own breath. Oh, that's confronting whatever that I was working with in this book um, it really in, in many ways felt like a dance it felt like a choreography um, and I had to be well aware of all the opposing feelings those doubts the um, you know the harsh edits the, the criticisms that I that I often gave myself um, I would I had to be in step with them as much as I was constantly trying to outmaneuver them they were always in front of me um, as I kept writing but telling this particular story, and and maybe maybe uh, what I could ask you to do, if you were willing, is I I would like those who are eavesdropping on our phone call to hear you maybe read a passage, if you would, from the Shadow King. Yes, I I will read a passage that is um it, it will be relatively short. Uh, it's a it's a it's a short paragraph, and um, this is a moment when one of my characters, an Italian character, um, Ettore, is photographing uh, an execution, a hanging, and he speaks to his father in his head as he's photographing this moment. Father. When a body lifts of its own accord, when it stretches heavenward and flings its head back to catch the sun, when the wind aids in its ascent and the gods of Olympus bend to cup the rebellious flight and hold it still, when we who are strong are held captive by the glories of resurrection, when neither cold nor heat nor human stench can shift our eyes away, when dark-winged birds carry a name and settle it in that burdened tree, when a body remembers its eternal grace and moves against invisible currents, when it rises out of its beaten shell and returns our gaze, still furious and proud, it is a miracle, Father. You know, um, I sort of can't say very much. Mm -hmm. Um... It's so pungent and poignant, and that recurrence, nearly liturgical recurrence of of the when.
um, these these dark moments, and he's been ordered to do this. Um, he's become an archivist of the dead. Uh, and he also realizes that what his camera captures is something that is without time. It's a timeless thing. It freezes moments, um, and it holds them. And I, I, I wanted throughout this book to consider words that, that stretch time, pause time, force time, uh, to be in these uncomfortable spaces. And I think the word when for me was that repetition. It doesn't end until the very end. At every every sentence that that begins uh, this paragraph, you write back to some that initial moment when this, when this, when this, um, until until it ends um, at the end with the word father, as if a marking on a body. And you know, I I, I hear. Um, I hear that word when again and again and again, and I also heard in the passage you chose to to read the word resurrection, which also is there from the start, from the start of the Shadow King, the first page right after your author's note, which is which is tremendous. Um, you you write inside the box, there are many dead that insist on resurrection. And the first sentence is, she does not want to remember, but she is here and memory is gathering bones. What a first sentence, Martha. What a first sentence, my goodness. So powerful. But this story you're telling, this story you're telling, for those listening in, the story you're telling of women and war, it's such a such a unknown story, yeah. and I feel like you're res- resurrecting a story that has been buried. Yeah, I feel um, in, in, in this. This is a history that has been unknown, um, not only in the West, but uh, you know, many Ethiopians were not aware of of these women. Um, but also, I think the act of writing for me has always been a form of resurrection. I have felt that throughout um, my career as a writer and also as a reader when I read other people's books. And I, I go back again to Dasha Dringage's book, Trieste, and she has at some point in the middle of that book a list of 9,000 names, and these were um, Italian Jews who were killed. And during World War Two, and she says at some point in that listing of the names, um, it's because every name has a story, and in in listing those names and forcing us to recognize them, we we understand the enormity of of what was lost, and it was something that I wanted to emulate through in this book. Um, and also to acknowledge what we do as writers and as artists in 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 uh, lifting darker moments of history and bringing it out to light, but also writing of those people that um, would remain forgotten if we didn't write them. I believe it was Borges that wrote a story, if I if I'm remembering correctly, uh, that said something to the effect of every time we think of someone who has passed, we bring them back to life. 
And so it's the way that I think of writing. And those who are truly, truly forgotten are those we no longer remember. Yes. I mean, and remember, you know, I've always loved the notion of the word remember in English because it really, truly, deeply means remembering, putting the members back together. You know, yes. as if disparate parts coming together. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's beautiful. Maza, um, so many, so many writers, and you were mentioning it uh, before, so many writers have inspired you in one form or another, and their, their wo- words have, have worked as forms of, of, uh, bringing back to life and resurrecting, as you said. Who who are those writers who you go back to again and again and and you feel you feel you need them or differently put, without them you might not be quite Maza. <laughs> I like that I love that laugh, by the way. Never lose it. Please. <laughs> Thank you. All right. I I will I will make sure You keep um, it. What a, what an amazing um, wh- why so I mean two questions why so yeah keep that laugh why so but and secondly um, um, you know um, well no let, let, let's let's begin with that why so and and uh, the other question being simply what rules did he break that you needed to to see him have having broken for you to have the liberty maybe to do the same. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I need something to look forward to of his. Mm. Um, I, 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 just his work, um, from beginning to, to the near end, I saw a transformation of a writer from Welcome to Hard Times, which was the very first book, to Homer and Langley. And, um, I felt reading 
than the end, or at least Homer and Langley. I haven't read Andrew's brain. So I, I felt, I, I was looking at a, at a, a writer, um, a span of work and, and understanding how writing talent, uh, different, different muscles in writing can develop and transform over a number of decades. So, uh, for me, he has been someone I have tracked very closely. Um, and the book, uh, the book of Daniel, the, the rules he, I remember the first page, I mean, just opening it and looking at the first paragraph of that, um, and the way it switches from third person to first person, the way that Daniel's voice interjects into his own narrative, and he takes over the narrative voice and then steps, steps back, and the third person continues, and then we have another quick, sharp move into something else, and then we move back to Daniel, then the narrator takes over, and then Daniel contradicts the narrator. Um, it was, do, do you have it there? Do you have it there in front of you? Yeah, I, let me look. I have, yeah, I have all those books here. Um, I'd love, yeah. I'd love you, I'd love you to read that, that first paragraph. You see, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it. I knew I could count. I knew I could count on your library being right there. It's really right here. It's right here. Well, that's and, where it should um, be. Oh, this is interesting. So my bookmark for this book is a documentary of the James Foley story. FYI, uh, it's really interesting. But um, speaking of the Rosenbergs, yeah. Um, Um, I I will have to admit to you that I have not read it, and that I'm I'm excited. I mean, I'm also excited to hear you 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 say that the, the book still is meaningful to you now because one of the things I've always been so fascinated by, I think I will be possibly until my last breath, is is what what are those the, the relationship between taste and aging. Uh, what what are those those books that re we remain faithful to or that remain faithful to us that age well? Um, you know, there there are certain books when we see bookmarks of our own, we we wonder how could we have liked that? How is that possible? Yes, and 
and and then um, and then there are those that you come back to again and again. And I think uh, Doctor O is is one of those. Um, the Greek tragedies are are just another group. Of I was just about to ask you. I was, of course. <laughs> there you have it. The la- lovely, wonderful laughter. But there, I was about to ask you. Um, the Greek tragedies. I'm, I'm now immersed more and more in things Greek. And I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering what place they hold for you. And it, it seems to me, um, that in the shadow of the shadow king, uh, Greek tragedy and the Greeks are ever present. Yes. Yes. I, um, I was thinking of this this war between Italy and Ethiopia as a great Spartan clash. I, I imagined it as a modern kind of Trojan War um, with heroes, heroic figures, or these strong figures on both sides. And I wanted, at least in the back of my mind, to not to attempt Homer, but to play homage to him in, in certain sections. And um, the what I have found absolutely riveting about the Iliad is um, the work of the chorus in the book, but also the way that um, Homer names the fighters, the people, the men as they are dying, and lets you know what they were known for, who they were back home, so that you understand this is not just a simple death, that these are complicated beings that are being taken off the earth. And um, I wanted to emulate that, that respect he had for the cost of war. You know, at some point, Maza, and I I feel I, I would love to bring you into this enchanted circle, I'd like to bring together a number of writers today for whom the Greeks speak uh, strongly and pungently in the way that you just described. And I've been thinking, I must bring Ishion Hutchinson together, uh, with Ocean, with Ocean Vuong. And now I think the third needs to be Maza Mengesti. I just, I, I just feel that the, the three of you talking about the Greeks, um, would be just wonderful. You know, there's, there's a poem that has, has meant uh, an enormous amount to me and also an enormous amount to me when it is read, uh, by the poet. When, when Derek Walcott read Sea, Sea Grapes. Do you know Sea Grapes? Um, and, and you remember that, that last line where he says, the classics can console, but not enough. Inception, um, that there were three three works that mattered so much, and you had mentioned mm-hmm. Toni Morrison um, and um, Doctor O, and I'm wondering I'm wondering if you're withholding the third one from me. Well, the third was um, the Iliad, and I 
there you have it. As you as you were talking, I quick yeah. I quickly looked. Where is my copy of War and the Iliad? And and there it is. And the first line is the true hero, the true subject, the center of the Iliad is force, force employed by man, force that enslaves man, force be, before which man's flesh shrinks away. In this work. At all times, the human spirit is shown as modified by its relations with force, as swept away, blinded by the very force it imagined it could handle, as deformed by the weight of the force it submits to. Amazing. Amazing. It really is, also because of when it was written, and in a yeah. in in a way, nearly why it was written, and yeah. I and I think that and I think there may be you know there may be parallels between um, the need to write war and the Iliad and the need to write the Shadow King, the need mm. to the need to tell that story of a woman warrior.
way that the person enacting the force also becomes a thing, that no one is ever truly free from the ravages of, of violence. Um, I, I will often set this book or set her essay um, next to another book by an Iraqi writer, um, Sinan Antun, called The Corpse Washer. And whereas Simone Weil says that once a human being is dead, they are just a thing. They've lost everything. Um, what the corpse washer does is, is really through um, this character of uh, an Iraqi man who washes corpses so that the souls can enter into heaven clean. Um, the question is, but are we really gone? Isn't there still something that the living must do for the dead? even once people are gone, don't we have a responsibility um, to those to those bodies, we think? They are not really things. They contain history. They contain memories. A bit like the Andaje. Yes, yes, yes. Those things are not gone just because the body has stopped breathing. Um, and I often set then Sinan Antun's book next to Han Kong, the South Korean writer, who won the Booker for the Vegetarian, but her book Human Acts takes this conversation even further. And for me, these voices become symphonic. Um, and they really helped me in, in understanding how to approach scenes of battle, scenes of mourning and grief, and quite frankly, scenes where people are remembered again. And like the first chapter of, of my book, um, they become resurrected through that act of remembering. Maza, maza. What a beautiful journey. Oh, um, thank you. It really, it really, it really has been such a pleasure to talk to you, and I, I can't wait to, to bring you together around the Greeks. I feel that I, I feel that that is something that needs to happen rather sooner than later. We need you to revisit the Greeks together with perhaps Ischion and Ocean, and sit you around the table. Um, or take a long walk talking about the Greeks and why they might matter oh, to us now. That would be wonderful. I would, I would be so honored and thrilled. They are two writers whose works I've read. I, Ocean Bong's book, Aishan's book, um, both his books are here on my desk. I keep a shelf that's very separate from my larger bookshelf um, right near my desk. And on that shelf, of course, is Dr. Rowe and the Iliad. But Ocean is on there too, and so is Aishan. So I would really, I would really love that. In in closing, Maza, I, I nearly as an addendum to our our phone call now. I wonder, and perhaps there isn't, but I wonder if there is a poem that particularly speaks to you that you might want to read.
assigned it to classes where we analyze it, and then I sit down and rewrite it again every few months. So I will read it, and it was um, again. This is a poem that was central to to my writing. Um, Daedalus and Icarus appear also in my book, um, and so I'll yeah I'll read it. Daedalus and Icarus. Daedalus says, go on, my son, and remember, you are walking, not flying. Wings are only an ornament, and you tread on a meadow. That warm gust is the balmy earth of summer, and that colder one is just the running stream. The sky is filled with leaves and little animals. Icarus says, my eyes, like two stones, fall straight back to earth, and they see the farmer turning over thick clumps a worm squirming in a furrow, an evil worm severing the plant's ties to the earth. Daedalus says, my son, that's not true. The universe is sheer light and earth a dish of shadow. Look, colors play here. Dust flies up from the sea. Mist rises into the sky. A rainbow is now being made from noblest Adam. Icarus says, my arms hurt, father, from this beating in a void. My numb legs yearn for pine needles, hard stones. I cannot look into the sun the way you can, father. I, who am immersed in the dark rays of the earth. Description of the catastrophe. Now Icarus plunges down headlong, his last image the sight of a child's heel being consumed by the gluttonous sea. Up above, his father cries out a name belonging not to a neck, nor to a head, but to a recollection. Commentary. He was so young, he didn't understand wings are just a metaphor. A little wax and feathers and contempt for the laws of gravitation. They can't sustain the body at a height of many feet. The crucial things is that our hearts, fueled by heavy, powered by heavy blood, should be filled with air. And that is what Icarus would not accept. Let us pray. Maza, thank you. My thank you. My gratitude to you and let us be in touch. And thank you for taking my call. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you. Bye-bye.